Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, it says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. And remember, we put it on and we keep it on. And it says in verse 13 that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You'll remember our enemy, the devil and his demons are not to be underestimated. Remember in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Paul reminds us that our enemy, the devil, And his demons have three characteristics. Number one, they are powerful. That's why they're called principalities and powers. Number two, they are called world rulers of this present darkness. In fact, the word for world rulers is an interesting word in the original language. It's cosmos, which is the word for world or the evil system that stands in opposition to God. And kratoros, which is... The sum and the substance of power, it was a use that was a word that was used in the ancient world to describe those who practiced astrology and the occult. They would use it to describe the course of heavenly bodies and its influence upon human beings. It was a word used To describe the planets and heavenly bodies and how they influence people's lives. It was also used by the Greeks in the Orphic hymns of Zeus and in the Gnostic writings of ancient wisdom. It was also used to describe the sacred powers of the emperor. The reason why Paul is using it, he wants to bring to our attention the wickedness of the enemy. That's his emphasis. You'll recall that our enemy is powerful, our enemy is wicked, and finally, our, our enemy is cunning. He uses in verse 11 a description of the wiles. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the deceits or the wiles or the schemes of the devil. The devil seldom attacks you openly. He is shrewd and dangerous. He employs the elements of deceit and discouragement and doubt. And since our enemy is powerful and since our enemy is wicked and since our enemy is cunning, we are to employ all of the tools that God has given to us in Christ Jesus, the Lord. We are to put on the armor throughout the New Testament. You'll often find Paul using the expression Put on Christ. Oddly enough, when you put on Christ, you are in fact putting on the armor. Remember what we've already learned. You put it on and you leave it on. We take our strength from God's grace, which is ours in Christ Jesus. The armor comes from the Lord and is fully embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Without the armor, we are fatally unprotected. We are enormously exposed. We've already looked at the belt of truth. The first thing that the warrior puts on the revelation of God, which is in Christ with the truth. We battle the enemy's lies. Remember, Christians are to be those people, those men and women who love the truth. The Christian doesn't simply know the truth. The Christian loves the truth. And because the Christian loves the truth, the Christian is willing to live the truth. That's holy living. We saw there are two kinds of righteousness, self-righteousness and the righteousness whereby we stand accepted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, self-righteousness means that you put on a breastplate of toilet paper. Yeah, that's how easy it is to penetrate that armor. And so we discover something. Not only is the truth in Jesus, but our righteousness is in Jesus. And that's how we're able to stand And it protects us against satanic accusation. We've already looked at the sandals of peace, which is, of course, we stand firm in the peace of God. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God. We're willing to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with others. And the gospel, remember, is the good news of Jesus's life and death and burial and resurrection in Christ. We have forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven. The devil hates the gospel. I think you know that the devil hates the gospel. He hates the gospel because it is the gospel that has the power to rescue human beings from Satan's awful demonic dictatorship. The gospel is Jesus's ultimatum to Satan that your time is up. Hope is available. Forgiveness is here. Heaven is a real place and Christians are going to go there. And now our attention turns to the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. We might think of these as absolute confidence in the Lord Jesus, absolute assurance that comes from Jesus, absolutely armed in Jesus. Look at verse 16 above all. Taking up the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. So we come to the fourth piece of equipment. Above all, by the way, doesn't mean that this is the most important piece of equipment. It doesn't mean having looked at the breastplate of truth, the righteousness which we find in Christ and the shoes shod with the gospel above all. It it really means That this particular piece of equipment is necessary. It is not to be neglected. It isn't to be ignored. It doesn't mean that you can refuse it. You might think I have enough so far. Well, no, the Roman soldier carried shields. And by the way, the Roman soldier carried two shields. One was very small and it was very round. It was used in hand to hand combat. It was a small shield. And it was used to deflect blows in close quarter combat or to turn away a glancing blow of a, of, a, of a sword or a spear. The second kind of shield was much larger. This is the Roman shield known as the scutum. 
This is a, a, a shield that Paul is making reference to. It would have been about two feet wide and it would have been about four feet long. And it was intended to protect the whole soldier. You have to understand something that Italian Roman Italian soldiers in the first century were much smaller in the first century. They were just really little guys. I happen to be very tall for an Italian person. We've grown up a little bit over the last couple thousand years. Now, the shield was intended to cover the whole person and and they had a locking component. You could lock the shields together and you could advance in a group or in a column. The, The Roman soldiers of the first century could create this sort of moving wall and the shield was made of a single piece of wood that would have been covered in soaked leather. And then that soaked leather would have been also um, covered with sometimes beaten metal. It would be bound at the top and it would be bound at the bottom by by an iron band. And then in the middle of the shield, there would have been an ornament. And sometimes the ornament would represent the division or or the legion of the particular Roman soldier. And the shield was designed to reflect the arrows of the enemy. And when the enemies of Rome saw these column of shields coming forward, the enemies would usually break in terror. During the heat of the battle, the shield would look like porcupines with arrows projecting from the shield. And by the way, every Roman soldier would test his shield. And you know how you test your shield? You stand six paces away with a bow and an arrow and you let the arrow fly into the shield. You want to know why? Because it had to stand up in the course of battle. There's nothing you want in battle less than a shield where an arrow goes through it like paper. It would be very much like if you're a police officer and for whatever reason you're the consummate skeptic and you decide to put around in your bulletproof vest. I just want to see if it'll work. And that's exactly the case. Spartan mothers would tell their children to bear their shields or be born by it. It was their way of saying, allow your shield to protect you. And if you need to come home, you can become home born on it. By the way, that's exactly what our faith is like. We carry it. And it carries us. This isn't simply the shield of faith. That is the idea that your words are a faith and your words are the container of the faith. Our faith is a force. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. It isn't a a force. It isn't an energy. Our confidence is in Christ. Our personal confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 91, 4, the psalmist wrote, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. And so our faith does at least three things. Number one, it should cover us in such a way that no part of our Christian walk is exposed or unprotected in your life in Christ and in your walk in Christ. Your full faith, your final faith is found in Christ. And number two, our faith should be able to join or or link forces with the faith of our brothers and sisters, just like the soldiers who were able to link shields to combat their common enemy. 
This is an important point because we unite our confidence in Christ for the express purpose so that we can serve and protect one another. For the person who lives their life in isolation, for the person who lives their life quite content to be apart from their brothers and sisters is living a life, I think, of less than than Christian standard. You see, we exist to provide for one another and protect for one another and to encourage one another. And number three, here's the idea. Because we're able to cover every portion of our walk in service with Jesus, because we're able to link or join or unite our confidence in Christ, we should be able to strike down the fiery darts that the enemy would throw our way. You have to understand something. When a Christian is threatened, every Christian is threatened. But when we unite in our faith and our confidence in Jesus Christ, we have untold power because our our power is in Christ. So, again, when I use the term, I mean the basic trust that we have both in the person of Jesus and in the promise of Jesus. That's our confidence. That's our faith. There was a missionary who was translating the Bible in the South Sea Islands of Polynesia. And as he was translating the Bible, he was looking for a word that would best describe faith. And one day a native came into his hut and he sat down completely on a chair. And the native said, it feels so good to rest the full weight of my body completely on this chair. And the missionary thought. That's it. That's how I'll translate faith. Faith means to rest one's full weight on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Putting no confidence in yourself. So the Bible tells us that the just will live by faith. Those who are justified live by confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, everyone has faith whether they want to admit it or not. It's just simply not everyone's faith that is in the Lord Jesus. Everyone trusts something. If you're not trusting Christ, then you're probably trusting yourself or, or you're trusting man-made opinions or you're trusting worldly philosophy or, or you're trusting in natural materialism. When a person flies in an airplane, they're trusting that the pilot won't crash the plane. When you are a passenger in an automobile, you're trusting that the driver isn't going to crash. When you stop at a red light, you're trusting that it's green for the other people. And then when it's green for you, what are you trusting? That it's red for them and that they will really stop. And when you leave here after church and you find a place to go eat that little restaurant that you like to go to after church, you're trusting that the, that the chef isn't in the kitchen going, I know, well, I know what you guys are thinking. I'm going to eat at home this afternoon. (laughs) Oliver Wendell Holmes said, it is faith in something that makes life worth living. And by the way, that was an illusion. It was just air. I believe that it's faith in Christ that makes life worth living. And also worth dying. The devil's fiery darts will penetrate anything that's not composed of faith. Let me tell you, in the ancient world of the first century, 
The fiery darts or the flaming missiles were arrows that were wrapped in cloth and that were dipped in pitch. It was a type of highly flammable tar-like substance that was mixed with sulfur. And the idea is that when the arrow would penetrate anything, it would burst into flames. And so again, that becomes a type and a picture of the devil's fiery darts. These sometimes come in the form of temptations, solicitations to evil or disobedience. They sometimes come in the form of certain depressions, certain doubts, certain fears, certain anger, certain guilt, certain shame, certain confusion. They can also take the form of persecution or demonic assault, anything. Here's the fiery flames of the enemy. These are any things that rip the believer from fellowship with Christ and unity with each other. And the dark penetrates. And it burns. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 5. That is why when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that all of our work had proved to be useless. Paul was concerned about the same thing that every pastor is concerned about today. How are you doing with Jesus? Has Satan got the best of you? By the way, that becomes part of the idea. What will it take to discourage you? What will it take to produce doubt? What will it take for you to give up? R. Kent Hughes called these hot shafts of sensuality, foul, diseased arrows of degrading passions, smoking arrows of materialism. The temptation comes and what happens? Do we hold up the shield of faith or do we hold up the paper plate of rationalism? Unquote. I like that. Rationalism, by the way, is a plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. I've had people tell me, well, if God didn't want this person in my life, why did God bring this person into my life? Well, God didn't bring the person into your life for you to sin with them. The person didn't come into your life to derail you from your confidence in Christ. This person hasn't come into your life so that you would abandon God and abandon a right relationship with God. Satan's strategy is still the same. Doubt God's word. Deny God's word. Believe Satan's lies. And when we collapse under temptation, when we collapse under the weight of temptation, we are in effect saying, I believe Satan. And then we wind up denying God. Therefore, all sin comes from the fact that we fail to act in faith that what God says is true. This is why Paul likens faith to a shield. What will it take for you to give up? Death? Disappointment? The loss of a job? Divorce? What will it take for you to become so embittered that you'll say, I don't want God and I don't want the Bible and I don't want Jesus. Temptation seems to be the chief enemy of faith. But the Bible says that we're to take heart. 
And we're to be encouraged in the midst of trial. It says in James chapter 1 verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he is approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Will you keep going? In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, the writer says, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in Him. We see it again. Jesus Christ is the shield. We extinguish flaming doubts and temptations of the enemy by taking up the shield of faith. And let me just put it to you simply. Taking up the shield of faith is the same as believing that what God says is true. And so we see the helmet of salvation. Look what it says in verse 17. And take up the helmet of salvation. Now, a Roman soldier looked very similar to the old football helmets used in the early days of tackle football. Most of you are way, way too young to remember this. But in the 1920s and 30s, you might have seen cards or pictures of guys in the 1920s and the 30s um, playing football. And they had this hard leather helmet that had straps that hung next to their ears. And it was very, very hard. Well, the same was true in the ancient days. Most soldiers couldn't afford metal helmets. The Romans could because they had the the finest materials. But Helmets in in the ancient days were made of leather and some of those leather would have been covered with metal plates and they were supposed to protect you from a smashing broadsword or a deadly axe. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, most soldiers were foot soldiers. They didn't ride on cavalry horses. And so those cavalry officers, particularly in the Roman Empire, had what was known as a broadsword. It was a gladius. It was a fairly large sword and it would have been strapped to their horse and they would use it to decapitate their enemies with the blunt end. They could smash their enemy's head or they could cut off their head. That's just like the devil. The devil would take advantage of us to smash us or to cut our head off. But discouragement and doubt are the twin edges of Satan's sword. Discouragement comes sometimes in the aftermath of a great personal victory like Elijah's triumph over the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. Some of you remember the story in the Old Testament. Elijah basically said, I'm going to have a contest with the prophets of Baal. We're going to prove which God is the true God. Okay, so here's how it's going to work. We're going to go to Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal are going to cry out to their God to consume a sacrifice. And then I'm going to cry out to the true and the living God. This is Elijah speaking. And whosoever God is really God, that's the true God. So the prophets of Baal get out there and, and they yell and they scream and they start shouting at the top of their lungs. They start foaming at the mouth. They start running up and down the aisles. They start swinging from the chandeliers. They start cutting themselves. And Elijah says, where's your God? Is he out going to the bathroom? Where's your God? And finally, they give up exhausted. And then Elijah prays. But before he prays, here's what he does. He digs a trench around the altar and he fills it with water. Then he takes another bucket of water and he pours it on the wood. Then he takes another bucket of water 
and he pours it on the sacrifice to make it really hard to catch on fire. I, I mean, when you soak something in water, it's to keep it from burning. And then he prays and fire comes from heaven and consumes the, consumes the sacrifice. And he gets emboldened. And Elijah takes a weapon and he destroys the prophets of Baal. And then Queen, wicked Queen Jezebel, makes a statement. She says, before the sun goes down, you're going to die. And Elijah has a crisis of faith and confidence. And he makes a run for it. Isn't that sort of like us? Sort of like you? You come to church, you open your Bible, you sing the songs, you pray the prayers, you hear the sermon, and you are pumped. You are pumped. You're ready to go out there and face the world. And then Monday comes and the world starts closing in on you, making you finding reasons not to believe that the Bible is true. One of the greatest tests of a person's faith and of a person's character what will it take for you to give up? Some people are willing to give up when the first threat is made. Some people are willing to give up when the first blow is given. Some people are willing to give up when the first shot is fired. Satan won't give up. He will not drop his sword. And so when we're talking about this helmet of salvation, what do you suppose it means? It means simply that we are saved. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. We are eventually going to be saved from the presence of sin. You've got to understand something. In 1 Thessalonians 5.8, when it says, as a helmet, the hope of salvation, it doesn't mean hope like maybe you grew up with. Do you remember when you were a kid and you were growing up and you would ask your mom and dad, they would say, hey, what do you want for Christmas? And you say, I hope I get a bike. Well, hope, when I was a kid growing up, didn't mean you're going to get it. You can hope all you want. That's what my granny from Mississippi would say. Hope in one hand, and you can guess what she wanted you to do with the other hand. See which gets filled first. Hope, in the Bible, is a confident expectation that what God says is true. The hope of salvation doesn't focus on our present state of being saved, but rather our ultimate destiny, our fixed and future hope. Sometimes in the heat of battle, we lose sight of our ultimate destiny, that we are saved, that we are going to heaven and that we're not going to hell. And heaven is a real place. And the helmet of salvation is the measure of salvation that we've received. That is forgiveness and deliverance from Satan's bondage, the full adoption into God's family. Remember what? But it said in Ephesians chapter one, turn all the way back to, to verse four and look what it says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved Don't you ever wake up some morning and just think to yourself, 
going to heaven. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. Do you realize how hard it is to get discouraged if you know confidently that you're going to heaven? You can even go to McDonald's and be happy. Can you imagine? You're standing in line and your face is glowing and your heart is on fire and you're smiling and you get up there and you go, chicken nuggets. And the person looks at you and says, what are you so happy about? And you say to them, I'm going to have to believe it. I know, you know you're a Jesus freak when people at McDonald's say, get alive. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. And if you look at first John chapter five, if you go to verse 13, it says these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do you know what every soldier who goes to battle, do you know what every police officer, every man and every woman who faces a criminal, each soldier, each officer has to know that in the end they are going to win and not lose. The helmet is placed on our heads. By the nail-pierced hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. He places it on us. The helmet is to give us confidence so that we can fight without being frightened in any way by those who would oppose us. This is the sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved. And that by God, that's what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. Your enemies will be defeated and you will stand. Confidence in the heat of battle is a sign of our salvation and then a sure sign of the enemy's destruction. Satan's doubt and Satan's discouragement extends to those who through trial and circumstance experience hardship and loss. Do you realize in the Old Testament that Job wore a helmet? Do you remember what he said? Even if God slays me, yet will I trust in him, yet will I serve him. If you can't trust God's goodness, if you can't trust God's faithfulness, if you can't trust God's reliability, then you will doubt your own salvation. But when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're delivered, the Bible says, from the penalty of sin. That's what it says in Romans 8, 1. Remember, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, condemnation is the judicial pronouncement of guilt. There's no sentence for sin. There's no penalty for sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. And look what it says at the end of verse 17. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Up until this time, all of our gear has been for our defense. A belt 
of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation. But now we have a weapon that is both defensive and offensive. This is the Roman short sword, by the way, and the sword of the spirit. He uses an interesting word. He doesn't use the Greek word gladius, which speaks of the very large sword. He speaks of the word machaira and the machaira was a short sword. It was about 18 inches long. It was a little larger than a modern day buoy knife. And it was razor sharp. It was beaten into the shape of a Celtic leaf with both sides sharp as a razor. And the weapon was used in close quarter combat. And here Paul likens it to the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. I have a friend named Joe Cordoba who um, is a knife maker. And in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there was a special operations officer who asked him to make him this knife based on a Roman Celtic leaf pattern. See, it's double edged with a blood groove and a pommel at the end. A Roman short sword would have only been two or three inches longer than this one. And because it was double edged, it could cut you coming. It could cut you going. It could pierce you and the pommel could break your skull open. This was amazing technology in the first century. And with this added advantage of being sharpened on either side, the Roman soldier was almost indestructible. John Bunyan, in his classic tale, Pilgrim's Progress, wrote, Then said Mr. Greatheart to Mr. Valiant for the truth, Thou hast worthily behaved thyself. I see Let me see thy sword. So he showed it to him. When he had taken it into his hand and he looked thereon, he said, Ha, this is a right Jerusalem blade. Then said Mr. Valiant for truth. It is so. Let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it. And he may venture upon an angel with it. He not fear for holding it, but he can... Lay hold on it. Its edge never goes blunt. It cuts flesh. It cuts bones. It cuts soul. It cuts spirit. It cuts all. Isn't that good? The Roman sword was sharp. But God's sword is even sharper. A Roman's sword could cut flesh and bones. But the word of God pierces both flesh and bone and soul and spirit, and it leaves you no place to hide. That's why when you hear the word of God, you get so convicted. And that's why your friends hate it so much when you quote to them the Bible. Have your family grown tired of telling you, stop talking about the Bible. Stop quoting the Bible. How often are you going to have to tell me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Will you just be quiet about the Bible? 
No. No, I won't be quiet about the Bible. The word of God is the Christian's conceal carry permit. You don't have to have a Bible on you. We understand the need for guns and tanks and warships and instruments used to defend our country and to use to defend our family. Yet we have a spiritual weapon and our spiritual weapon is more powerful than the combined weapons in the whole world. And this is our weapon for hand to hand fighting in the spiritual trenches of this wicked world. I hope and pray that you've never been in a knife fight. But if you ever are in a knife fight, do you know where your attention goes in a knife fight? To the knife. It's hard to look at the person carrying the knife. It's your full attention is on the knife. And when you're in a knife fight, here's what you want to do. You want to make that knife go away. And when you are a Christian... When you don't believe the Bible, when you doubt the Bible, when you suspect that the Bible is full of errors and can't be trusted, you, in effect, drop your sword. Oliver Cromwell read this passage and he fought with a sword in one hand and a Bible in the other. Of course, that's not what the passage means. This isn't a call to arms in the sense that the next time you go to battle, have a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. Yet when Jesus fought Satan in the wilderness, it was with the sword of the spirit, which was the word of God. The sword was forged in the heat of his inexpressible holiness and formed by the breath of his mouth and sharpened by the mind of his self-existent intelligence. In the book of Revelation, it is this sword that proceeds from the mouth of the Messiah. Jesus had a duel in the desert with the devil. And in Matthew chapter 4, we, we get a look at the duel. If you have a Bible, you might want to just turn there real quick. In Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. By the way, is that a sin? Is it a sin to be hungry? No. Jesus is the son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is the self-existent one. He is the one who is both God and man. Would it have been a sin for Jesus to turn the stone into bread? You'll note something in the Bible. Jesus never performs a single miracle apart from the wisdom and the will of his father. He answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you understand what he's saying? If I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat on God's terms. I'm going to eat when God says it's okay for me to eat. I'm going to eat when the Lord makes the provision for me. Then the devil took him up to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus, you can 
bend steel with your bare hands. You can leap a mighty river. You're faster than a speeding bullet. You can throw yourself off the pinnacle. God has a plan and a purpose for your life. You can't die. Then Jesus said, it is written again, you shall not test or tempt the Lord your God. In verse 8, again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Satan three times tests the Lord Jesus. Each time Jesus deflects the temptation with the word of God three times, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. And I think it's interesting. For 40 days and for 40 nights, Jesus was in the wilderness. By the way, few people take the time to memorize the book of Deuteronomy, let alone read it. Have you ever tried to read the Bible through? And you got through Genesis and you got through Exodus and you somehow managed to swallow Leviticus and you go, I can't go on. Deuteronomy makes no sense to me. But in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 46, it says this. Take to heart all the words I've given to you today. Pass them on as a command to your children so that they will obey every word of this law. These instructions are not mere words. They are your life. By obeying them, you will enjoy a long life in the land that you're crossing the Jordan River to occupy. The words of God are given to us in the scripture. Do you know what? When you like weapons, particularly when you like edged weapons or you like guns or you like knives or you like swords, a person who loves sharp things is usually not content to have one sharp thing. I think I'm that way. Genesis. I should have brought another knife. Exodus. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I want something sharp for every occasion. No wonder it's called the sword of the spirit because the Holy Spirit is is the author. The Holy Spirit is the unseen scribe. The scripture is God breathed. The scripture is God's word, and because it's God's word, it reveals God's mind. And by the way, God's mind isn't subject to sin. If our hearts and our minds are filled with the word of God, we're less likely to be taken captive by the enemy. We're less likely to be exploited by the enemy. We're less likely to be dominated by the enemy. We're less likely to give in to temptation. And so the word of God is our sword. And with it, we cut through the defenses of human beings. We use it to poke their conscience. We use it to stab them and wake them up. Will you stop poking me with that Bible of yours? No! We always carry it and we should never be ashamed of it. Moody called a mutilated Bible a broken sword. Kent Hughes argued the word of God draws the blood of Satan himself. The word of God wounds. 
But it's also a balm and a medicine for those who hurt. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in the power of the Bible? Do you believe in the power of his word? Do you believe in the sufficiency of his word? Do you believe in the clarity of his word? Are you troubled by the debates that draw your weapon into question? Here's the truth. If you don't believe your Bible, you won't use it. You know what every police officer knows? And do you know what every military officer knows? Every police officer knows and every military officer knows that the most ineffective weapon is the one that you will never use. The police officer doesn't take care of his weapon or her weapon. The military person doesn't take care of his weapon or her weapon in the hopes that they will use it. But in the reality that in the heat of the battle, it is almost invariably used at some time. And so you have to take care of it. What do you trust? The opinions, the thoughts, the failed philosophies of sinful human beings. Your enemy, the devil, has made surprising progress into the lives of Christians who doubt the authority, who doubt the sufficiency, who doubt the clarity of the Bible. There are people who deny the word of God. They deny its power to heal. They deny its power to convict the sinner. They deny its power to change the life. They deny its power to transform the sinner. And so they don't use it. What a lie. The lie causes us to place our sword in its sheath and refuse to pull it. Christian, don't throw down your sword. By the way, what better thing to do than to obey Paul's admonition? Take up the sword of the Spirit. Not throw it down. Take it up. How do you take it up? By reading it. Read your Bible. How can a Christian not read the Bible? You will never be able to use what you don't know. I have devoted my whole life to the Bible, word for word, verse for verse, chapter for chapter, book for book. And I still forget it. And I still need to be reminded. Harry Ironside read the Bible 14 times before he was 14 years old. That's the best education. Billy Graham was asked, if you had it to do all over again, what would you do differently? And he said, I'd study the Bible more. I would read the Bible more. You don't have to wait till it's all over again. You can do it now. Read the Bible. Memorize the Bible. Donald Gray Barnhouse's wife was once asked how long it took for Dr. Barnhouse to prepare a sermon. She said 30 years. And 30 minutes. His whole life was a preparation for every time he opened his mouth. Study the Bible. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent. That means study. Be diligent to, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you understand? You will grip the sword firmly when you study it, when you know it, when you believe it. We have absolute confidence because Jesus is our shield. We have absolute assurance because Jesus is our helmet of salvation. And guess what, Christian? You are armed. And you are thoroughly dangerous. 
when the Bible isn't simply in your hand, but it is in your heart and at the tip of your tongue. Temptation, discouragement, hardships will come. Every day you're going to be faced with this question. Satan will ask you every day. He never gets tired of asking you this question. What will it take for you to give up? What will make you give up? What will make you close your Bible? Close your mind. Close your heart. And walk away. Trust him. Believe him. Put the armor on. Keep it on. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person who's here. Lord, I pray that we would put our armor on and that we would keep it on the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The shoes of the gospel of peace. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the spirit. Lord, we know there's one piece of equipment left. We haven't talked about it, but we will, Lord, next week. Prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that prayer acknowledges our dependence upon you. Lord, for every person who has acted independent of you, trusted their own knowledge, trusted their own strength, trusted their own righteousness, trusted their own wisdom, Lord, I pray that they would come to that impoverished conclusion. I can't trust myself. I need to trust God. I need to trust Jesus completely. And Lord, for that person who has never made that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart. Lord, I pray that they would put on Christ now. That they would be willing to turn from their sin and embrace Jesus fully and finally and be prepared for the day of battle. Lord, we know it's a wicked world, but we know that Jesus is a wonderful Savior. So full of hope, so full of joy, so full of peace, so full of forgiveness. Lord, I pray that each and every person would abandon their sin and embrace their Savior. Is that you? Do you need to have a right relationship with God? Have you been filled with doubt and discouragement? Has Satan told you to give in and give up? But you know that the truth is in Jesus. And you know that there's life in Jesus and hope in Jesus and future in Jesus. Just slip up your hand and I'll pray for you. God loves you. Jesus wants to fill you with the knowledge of his presence and love. Heavenly Father, for those who have raised their hands, Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that they would walk in confidence and assurance that Jesus is our everything. Lord, we want to know you and trust you and believe your word. 
So, Lord, again, I commit these people to you. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand.